thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. When we think about obstructive sleep apnea, we tend to focus on the posterior oropharynx in the tongue, particularly as we do more hypoglossal nerve stimulator implantation. But what about the nose? Here to talk to us about the role of the nose in OSA is Dr. Jolie Chang. Dr. Jolie Chang is an otolaryngologist who specializes in surgery to treat obstructive sleep apnea. She serves as chief of the UCSF Division of Sleep Surgery. She has expertise in sleep endoscopy and upper airway surgery, snoring surgery, palate surgery, tongue-based surgery, and, of course, hypoglossal nerve stimulator implantation. Today's episode is sponsored by Wesper. Wesper was not involved in developing the content of this episode. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So what is the role of the nose in obstructive sleep apnea? It's a great question. Uh, I think a lot of patients and providers ask this a lot. So I like to step back and think about what the role of the nose in general is, because I think that really helps us think about how we care for the nose. So overall, the um, job of the nose, I like to remind people, isn't just a, a conduit for air, but it actually does humidify heat and filter the air that it's breathing. And so instead of just a, a fixed structure, like we like to think about it on our faces, inside the nose, the lining of the nose really is responding to the environment. And the air, air filtration role and the thickness of the lining of the nose will respond to everything it breathes in. Um, and if the lining gets thicker, we get some relative congestion and sometimes obstruction, depending on the cause and the timing and time of day. Oh, so is that the nasal cycle that you're talking about? Yes, exactly. So the lining of the nose, as I said, is is responding to the world and the air it's breathing in. And that is manifest as the thickness of the lining in the nose will vary throughout the day. Um, it actually has its own circadian variation in, in thickness and will alternate sides to control the relative airflow through the nose. And so this does this uh, during the day and at night, and there's definitely a postural component to it. So it's very common for people to lie down and feel more congested on the side that they're lying on because the, the mucosal lining is changing and um, varying, especially when, when people lie supine. So is that why people talk about that all the time, that they're fine and then they go and they lay back and their nose congests? Yeah, I think it's a couple things. I don't think relatively the nasal resistance is much higher when we go to sleep. It's just that now you have a time in which you can think about your nose, right? You're supposed to be quiet <laughs> and go to sleep. And, um, but then there is a side-to-side -side variation. They're not meant to be kind of equal at all times of the day or, or even when we're lying down. And when the, the thickness of the lining changes, that's manifest as congestion. Um, and people feel that as an obstruction or a congestion. Ah, so then how should we address this with our patients? It depends on kind of what component bothers them, um, especially for sleep apnea. It's very important because it can limit how they tolerate CPAP and affect um, some of the airflow can be very drying for the nose. So they can get either congestion at the beginning of the night or maybe in the middle or end of the night. Um, so I think that a lot of us will first line therapy, talk about, you know, care of the nose, 
If they have allergies, we'll talk about first um, doing a routine kind of nasal saline rinse, especially mm-hmm. at the end of the day to rinse off anything. I, I love doing this, especially for people that work outside. If they garden or their job takes them to construction sites or other places where they will be relatively more um, congested at some points because of that that environment. And so rinsing the nose and allowing the nose to kind of recover from that day of activity is super helpful. Um, we, I like the nasal rinse and just doing it at nighttime and allowing patients to kind of clear the nose before bedtime is the first level. If there's still congestion, we'll add a topical steroid spray on top of that after the flush. Uh, so, and how long do you have to wait between the two? Um, you don't have to wait very long. I think, okay. you know, flush, you can blow your nose and then go ahead and spray. So how does CPAP then change airflow and and does that change the job of the nose? It's a good question. So CPAP, um, because of the airflow and the air pressure within the CPAP, um, can be a little bit drying to the mucosal lining. So the response of the nose when it feels dry is to congest or to mm. change the congestion and the lining of the nose. And so you can get this congestion relatively later on after using CPAP for a while. Um, and similarly, if people are congested in the morning, they can again rinse and possibly use uh, topical nasal steroids if it's bothersome. Usually getting up and moving about the day, it kind of resets. And so um, not everyone needs to do that. So, you know, you taught me something that I have implemented into my practice. So now instead of just recommending a nasal steroid, I actually talk to them about how they should do it. I guess I just assumed that they would know how. So tell me about how we should be instructing our patients to use their nasal sprays. Yeah, it's an interesting question and kind of a very um, common one (laughs) we'll instruct and teach It's best done with a visual, but you can see there's like actually a lot of videos. And even in the insert of the the spray, we'll often describe this. Um, But if you think about the nose, a lot of us think the nose, um, the nostrils just point straight up toward the eyes, but the actual nasal cavity travels straight backwards toward the back of our heads. And so the most optimal way to deliver a nasal spray, which would kind of treat the entirety of the nasal cavity inferiorly, would be to um, insert the tip of the spray into the nose and point it toward the top of the same ear um, and, and then spray, breathe in, and then do the other side pointing toward the same top of the same ear. And that, that allows the spray to spray away from the septum too. And our septum is very vascular. And so some people that get a lot of dryness from the sprays can get some nosebleeds. Um, so this is another way to help with that and help avoid those. Oh, that's a good point. Should we expect improvement if we maybe start like like medical management then of rhinitis, for example, with a nasal steroid? Does that actually do anything to the AHI? Does it do anything to symptoms? Yeah, great question. Um, there have been some studies that looked at this, um, some some medical treatment studies that looked at um, randomizing a topical steroid versus placebo. And there is a significant change in the AHI. It's, it's a small change, but it was significant. And, um, <clears throat> but 
more importantly, there is a change in symptoms. So people have noticed improved sleepiness if you deliver any form of treatment to the nose, a medical, um, and then there's other studies looking at surgical, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but overall, I think it does improve um, CPAP use and tolerance and improve some of the symptoms related to sleep. So it's a small change in AHI. Um, there's some more systematic reviews that suggest it wasn't a significant change in the AHI, so we're not expecting this to cure everyone of sleep apnea. Well, and so that kind of leads us right into this, right? Like, what are some common misconceptions about the nose and what surgery can do? I mean, do we have realistic expectations when we, you know, refer our patients for nasal surgery? Yeah, I think a lot of the discussion uh, for patients for nasal surgery, especially, is uh, first figuring out what about nasal breathing bothers them, what time of day, um, daytime versus nighttime, and how that in interacts with their CPAP use or interferes sometimes with their CPAP use. And then we, we really move into kind of what we're aiming for. So if the goal is to resolve sleep apnea and snoring, I think a lot of the data suggests that even if there's a small change in the AHI or our main measure of OSA severity, that <clears throat> it probably is unlikely to cure someone who has moderate to severe sleep apnea. <clears throat> now, it's a really interesting um, question because there is a, a subset of people who respond really nicely uh, to nasal surgery or also to some of the medical therapies, and they'll say, and you'll, you'll find these, they'll spray and use consistently the nasal steroid spray and say, oh yes, my snoring went away. And I, but I'd say that's pretty rare. And so those patients more likely have positional sleep apnea, they're less likely to be obese um, and probably have milder sleep apnea. And those, those patients have a <clears throat> more of an ideal setup to kind of impact some of their sleep apnea. Now, the really interesting thing in the studies for nasal surgery, even though there wasn't a significant change in OSA severity, there is a, a significant change in sleep symptoms. So daytime sleepiness measured with the Epworth sleepiness scale score, that even those that didn't have an AHI improvement reported a significant decline in their hmm. um, Epworth sleepiness scale score, which was really interesting. And then there have been studies that show CPAP adherence improves. Uh, CPAP pressure, the average pressure does decline a little bit and that adherence improves. So when you talk about improvement in symptoms, is that the nasal steroid plus CPAP or was that nasal steroid alone? This was nasal steroid alone in that study. And then the surgery ones have also, um, post-surgery have shown uh, sleep symptom improvement. And that kind of gets to sort of the goal of surgery, right? Like, are we referring them because they are having difficulty tolerating PAP therapy due to a nasal issue versus are we hoping for, you know, to get rid of their sleep apnea? Like you said, somebody who is maybe non-obese and maybe positional and has a significant nasal component. Exactly. So for most, <clears throat> most of our patients, we're not aiming to do nasal surgery to cure sleep apnea and snoring. It is, it is aimed to help with PAP tolerance, especially now with evidence showing that the nasal masks or the nasal interfaces are more ideal for CPAP. I think it, that 
that it, it is a good goal to help with improving tolerance in those cases. It's also interesting because we'll also get patients who never tried a nasal interface for mm -hmm. their pap because they were they told um, whoever was fitting them or they, they had reported that they had nasal obstruction or they're a mouth breather and they went straight for a full face mask. And um, I, I lean on my sleep, sleep medicine colleagues for this, but cause I don't do a lot of fitting, but I, I, my mantra is even if they report some obstruction, there are still many who will benefit from a, a nasal mask, whether that's nasal pillows or nasal mask, um, even with that obstruction. So there are many people that will report that with the CPAP on their breathing's actually better because, because right. it's, it's helping deliver air through through their nasal passages. That's one of my pet peeves. <laughs> is yeah. that if you it's almost like this secret club, right? If you just say I'm a mouth breather, then boom, <laughs> you go straight to full face mask. And that is that is one of my it's funny that you say that. It's actually it's one I of my know. pet peeves. <laughs> it's also super I think we've talked about this before, but it's also um, you know, mouth breathing's so common when you have sleep apnea because we're having obstruction at other levels and mm -hmm. it's almost like the body's response or reflex in some patients is to have them breathe through their mouths, which is was super interesting. And so um that doesn't mean they won't tolerate the nasal mask. I think that's the the message. So I've seen a lot of this lately in terms of like flyers coming to my office and stuff online, but can you actually train somebody or or can they train themselves to breathe through their nose? And And what I'm really curious about is, so let's say you can sort of be really intentional about breathing through your nose and does that sort of stay when you're sleeping? It's a great question. I think this is an area we don't have a whole lot of answers for. Um, so I counsel patients a lot who say that they're mouth breathers, that even if we opened up their nose, there are some patients that just never convert to breathing only through their nose, especially during sleep when they can't control, you know, how they're breathing or voluntarily control it. And so I, I think that's a, a fabulous point. Specifically in the population with sleep apnea, I think it's it's really hard unless their sleep apnea is treated somehow, you know, CPAP, oral appliance, surgery, that we cannot promote full nasal breathing until there's some therapy for the sleep apnea as well. Once they're treated, for example, with the hypoglossal nerve stimulation, we do know, and for, with CPAP, optimally we breathe through our noses and and that should be ideal, but not everyone can achieve it. So we will do things and suggest things like lip taping, chin strap, try to promote that nasal breathing, but some people can, can't do it. Um, so I don't, I don't really know. Um, there's no rigorous or studied or um, evidence-based algorithm in which we could train somebody to breathe through their nose yet, at least for the adults that I know of. And I, I, I don't treat children, so I don't have that background. Yeah, it's it's kind of a popular thing. Um, something else that was really, it kind of went viral maybe a month or two ago was mouth taping. So yes. what are your thoughts on mouth taping? It depends on what we're mouth taping for. A lot of people try it for snoring, <laughs> which means they haven't been diagnosed with sleep apnea right. or haven't gone through the workup. And so it really depends, I think, on the severity of sleep apnea. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. But simply taping your mouth probably isn't the solution for everyone. There is no solution that works for everyone, probably. Right. Um, but simple mouth taping is really effective in adjunctive therapy. So mm -hmm. we have some patients who have a hypoglossal nerve stimulator and um, 
we have found if we can bring their lips together, and that could be mouth taping, chin strap, sometimes a, a neutral kind of mouth appliance that brings the teeth neutrally together, that that does help with their effectiveness of therapy because now you're bringing the jaw together and that, that relative obstruction from the tongue base falling back is relieved. And so I think that it definitely has a role in, in our, our treatment algorithm, but doing it on everyone is is not effective. Well, and that's the nuance, right? It was all over TikTok and I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is <laughs> this cannot be a good idea." <laughs> so, let's take a short break and when we come back, we'll talk more about the nose and its role in obstructive sleep apnea. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. With Wesper, sleep management is so easy. You could do it. Well, in your sleep, Wesper delivers a powerful sleep management platform built to address sleep conditions from testing through ongoing care. From home sleep apnea testing and sleep disorder testing to remote patient monitoring, patient titration, outcome management, and much more. It's sleep management made easy. Learn more at Wesper.co. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Jolie Chang about the nose and obstructive sleep apnea. So how do you figure out who the ideal surgical candidate is? Um, it's a great question. This is true for every surgery we have, but everything starts with a, a conversation of what their expectations are for surgery, anatomic evaluation. So we do a, a full exam of the nose. I can get into that. And then a, a discussion of what surgery can achieve. So we talked a, a bit about that before that we're, you know, especially in sleep apnea, we're aiming for improved airflow through the nose um, day and night. And it's really a, a quality of life decision point as to how much the nasal obstruction bothers that patient. And the goals would be to improve CPAP tolerance, improve some symptoms related to sleep apnea, but not to cure sleep apnea and snoring. So I have a lot of patients that tell me, you know, right out of the gate, they're like, well, I have a deviated nasal septum. And it seems like this is, you know, really common. <laughs> and so is there an algorithm where you can decide if this is, you know, is this the thing that's impacting their ability to breathe? Is it something else? Exactly. So septal deviation is so common. Everyone, and I, I walk around and I say, your septum's not straight unless somebody else has been there to straighten it. <laughs> um, because it, septal deviation and kind of normal variations in the septal shape is, is just part of the normal uh, anatomy. So really the assessment's a combination of the septal deviation, the turbinates, the location of the deviation, and symptoms. So I can have meet somebody where I can't even look inside their nose. It's so obstructive, but they don't notice a thing. They don't they don't complain of any nasal obstruction at all subjectively. And the flip side I can meet somebody with with no septal deviation or very mild and they feel obstructed and that could be the turbinates, could be other structural issues. But the subjective experience is very different than the anatomic correlate. And there's been studies to try to correlate the two. There's, they're not great. And so both things are just as important. What I, what I warn is that we are, we're treating and aiming 
to treat the symptom. So if there's no symptoms related to that septal deviation, there really is no reason to go in and fix the septal deviation. Uh, patients come in with a lot of different ideas about that because there's a lot of belief that the snoring comes from the septal deviation or the cause of sleep apnea could be. And it, and it sounds really good because, it, you know, that is a surgery that's very well tolerated and there's a lot of hope that it, it cures so many other things. But we really focus on how much the nasal obstruction bothers them, uh, where it's obstructed, um, and where they sense the ob obstruction. So what about nasal valve collapse? I mean, is this something we should be assessing in clinic? Um, it's up to, it depends on who. So yes, we, we assess this all the time in otolaryngology clinic because we are assessing the full capacity of the nose. The, the full nasal exam itself is um, at its very base. It, we use a um, anterior rhinoscopy, which is just a little speculum to open the nose so we can look in with our light. We're looking at relative turbinate size, septal deviation, where it's deviated, because that has, um, that informs us where it might be most narrow in the nose. Um, we're also screening for things like polypoid disease, sinusitis, etc. And then Overall, the external component, when you talk about the nasal valve, that's looking at the external nose. The classic um, nasal valve collapse kind of test is you have them close one nostril and kind of suck in. And you can see, and some people have weak car weaker cartilages, you can see some collapse of the nasal valve. And that can be in also varying locations along the nose on the outside. And so both things can contribute structurally to obstruction. So nasal valve collapse, septal deviation and location, size of the nose, size of the nostril, turbinate size, and then of course, um, systemic responses to allergens, environmental allergy, etc. So all those things are part of the assessment of what could be the cause of nasal obstruction. And it's often not just one thing. It's a couple things that contribute. Well, I remember learning about how to assess for a nasal valve collapse at a sleep conference like years ago. So then, of course, right after the conference, I'm doing it for everybody. <laughs> so then, but I'm, but I'm not sure. And then I got to the point where it's like, well, what, why am I doing this? Like, what, what can be done about nasal valve collapse? Like, what are the procedures you can do? Yeah. So the classic test is we do that nostril closure, look for collapse, and then we'll do the, the caudal or modified caudal maneuver where you can either stick a Q-tip or up the kind of just in the opening of the nose and lift it a little and see. And everyone feels better when you do that, by the way. So <laughs> how hard you lift, there's like a little improved airflow. Um, medically, it's really interesting. I, you know, sometimes we, we get the response and have people try things like the breathe right strip. So if it's upper lateral cartilage collapse, the breathe right strip and that support um, can help some people. And they'll say they have significant benefit when they do that versus the internal nasal valve support, which is the nasal cones and mm. things like that, that might support the nostril. And, and um, I think that those are very helpful in having people kind of mimic what it would be like to do a nasal valve repair. Ah, um, yeah, okay. Sometimes we do that. Um, so nasal valve repair is interesting. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do it, um, just like there's a lot of different ways to do almost any surgery you talk about. Yeah. But uh, newer techniques are kind of interesting, and, and new isn't always better. So it really depends on where it's collapsing first, what structurally about the nose else is going on inside. So you're going to suck, um, you're going to 
pass more negative pressure through one nostril if the septum is very deviated on the same side you collapse. So sometimes repairing the septum may help with the collapse. But our um, surgeons and a lot of us will approach it in, in two different ways. The, the most common nasal valve collapse kind of repair involves um, an external rhinoplasty approach where we will lift part of the skin of the nose and probably put a, a little cartilage graft to kind of support that valve or huh. expand a certain portion of the vestibule of the nose. And so that is one method that can be very effective. It's it's very effective if someone also doesn't cosmetically like the shape or direction of hmm. the nose or some asymmetry, they can correct those at the same time in some patients who, who want to achieve that. The newer techniques, there's some new implants that um, are dissolvable that allow us to kind of stiffen that valve. And so we insert those under the skin of the nose. It can be done in the clinic or the operating room um, in the right candidate. And huh. it, they, they're placed there, they create a little scarring, and then they dissolve over six to eight months to kind of create that stiffness of the tissue. And there's some people that respond really well to those as well. That kind of sounds like a sort of new pillar implant, but in the nose. <laughs> so what is empty nose syndrome? It's a, That's a fantastic question. So empty nose syndrome classically um, is basically a nasal cavity that's very open. And yet the sensation of airflow is somehow not there. And so the patient feels congested and obstructed, even though anatomically they have a very open nose. Now this, this occurs if the, the turbinate is resected. This is the most common kind of cause of that. And I would say no one does this anymore, but long, long time ago in order to create more space in the nose, some people would resect a portion or all of the inferior turbinate. And that would create a lot of space in the nose, but we no noted that led to a lot more nasal dryness and did not improve nasal obstruction. And so these days, most of the techniques are focused on preserving the turbinate structure. Oh, that's interesting. So can you use CPAP after nasal surgery? Yeah, you can. It depends on the surgery. Um, and this is a great question to bring up. Classically, if it's just nasal surgery um, in the in the nose, intranasal surgery, <clears throat> you can. It may be uncomfortable to use like a nasal pillow. It can be a little sore on the bridge of the nose. Most of us will say you should probably use a full face mask in that case for the short term, probably one or two weeks. The caveat being is if you have uh, sinus surgery or skull base, especially skull base surgery, there are limitations of using CPAP. So if the skull base has been um, entered because that was the approach for surgery, this is seen in pituitary gland surgery, they will hold off on CPAP use. And that amount of time varies based on the surgery and the surgeon, but this can be anywhere from four to eight weeks, I've, I've heard. Oh, that's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they want that to heal because we, we'll see pneumocephalus. If We've all seen that CT scan, haven't we? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other one is for classic sinus surgery. If there's concern, there was um, the, the, the lining of the, the bony lining to the eye is, is injured or it was a component of the surgery, then they will also avoid CPAP for a shorter amount of time. 
So what do we do about our patients who use Afrin all the time? You know, <laughs> why, why shouldn't we be doing this and how do we get them off of it? Great question. Afrin's a great medication because it allows for immediate decongestion. Um, and we use it in clinic all the time to assess, um, to allow us to scope patients and all those things. Patients love Afrin, of course. Um, so what I tell patients is um, Afrin is addictive in the sense that when you, uh, A, that your response to it can decrease over time. And also when you come off of it, you get this rebound congestion that can be pretty bad. So it can be very hard to wean someone off Afrin. If they're going to have nasal surgery, most of us will require them to come off Afrin uh -huh. because it does thin the lining of the nose. And so the health of the lining will be limited and we want them to heal optimally. And so in that sense, most people understand that Afrin can be injurious if they're taking it chronically. If somebody's motivated to come off Afrin, we will usually tell them to wean it slowly. So you could go from everyday use if that's or every night use if that what they're what they're doing to every other night use, or you can alternate nostrils and oh. then back off slowly in combination with doing Flonase at the same time. So do Flonase every night before. And then if they need the Afrin, because they've been doing it every night, then we'll we'll back off a little slowly slower and that seems to help them come down. Alternating nostrils is really interesting. I hadn't considered that. And then skipping a day and skipping two days. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So one of one of the things that I love about our field of sleep medicine is that it's, you know, it's it's kind of collaborative, right? Like we have people from internal medicine and pulmonary and neurology and otolaryngology and cardiology and, you know, any any field really. Um and so I love that you have worked with um, Dr. Goldberg and Dr. Eileen Rosen on a compendium. So tell me about this. Yes. So this was a an interesting journey. It, it was pretty long, but this was the international <laughs> consensus statement on obstructive sleep apnea. Um, the journal I, IFAR, the International Forum on Allergy and Rhinology, um, basically commissioned this. I won't say how long ago. And um, basically, <laughs> I think we can imagine. Goldberg, <laughs> uh, Eileen Rosen, and myself were the co-editors to uh, embark on this journey to, to write a consensus statement on the most updated evidence for sleep apnea. They left it pretty broad. But I, I'm excited that we finally put it out uh, in its final format this year. And this was really a collaboration with over 130 faculty around the world in sleep medicine, sleep surgery, dentistry, we have cardiology. Oh, uh, wow. Many different neurology, psychiatry as well. And so it, it covers um, sleep apnea kind of diagnosis. But most interesting was to put the surgeons and the sleep medicine kind of evidence together. Um, so we have a lot on CPAP and the focus really is on, on health risk reduction and what is the evidence for CPAP and for, for surgery. And it really helps us define where else we need to go. Where are the weak points? What mm -hmm. else do we need to do? And there's a lot, of course, but if you need any uh, inspiration, you can peruse this um, document. There are, it is written in these uh, small kind of bite-sized sections. You know, the 
pick, you can pick through in the table of contents what's interesting. And then for things with enough evidence, there is a recommendation table based on the best available evidence on how to kind of converse with patients. It's really altered how I converse with patients in counseling for some of the health risk reduction based on the evidence. Oh, that's fantastic. So we'll have a link available as well. Great. Thank you. So any final thoughts? Um, final thoughts. The nose is important for breathing. <laughs> Sleep apnea and um, take care of it. And um, we are happy to evaluate patients who are struggling with any of their nasal issues. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us to better understand the role of the nose in obstructive sleep apnea. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.